Welcome to Garden Success with Skip Richter, the show designed to help you have a bountiful garden and a beautiful landscape. Call in now with your lawn and garden questions at 979-845-5689 or email your questions to gardensuccess at tamu.edu. And now, Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist Skip Richter. Well, hello and welcome to Garden Success. We are your call-in gardening show and looking forward to having you call in. I'm going to give you a phone number and please write it down so you can. It is 979-845-5689. 979-845-5689. Or you can email me, perhaps attach a photo of a plant that you would like identified or diagnosed or whatever. It's garden success, one word, garden success at T-A-M-U dot E-D-U. We are glad you're listening today, and it's a good day to be talking about gardening a little bit. It's a little cool on the outside, but not not uh, such that you wouldn't want to go outside. We're not going to complain about the kind of cool we have, but I was walking around in shirt sleeves today thinking, man, I couldn't decide if it felt good or if it was just a little on the cool side, but I think we're going to go with feeling good. That was early this morning anyway. Uh, Well, let's start off by going to the phones today, and we're going to talk to Wilf. Good morning, Wilf. Good morning, Skip. I've got a couple of questions. The main one is uh, a real problem with tiny weeds still growing up through the mulch. Okay. And I used a stirrups uh, hoe, and I scrape them and try to let them dry out. Mm-hmm. And uh, they keep coming back. They're all over the yard, the, okay. around the bushes. Uh, are, are you pretty sure they're seedlings, or do you have maybe some sort of a perennial weed under there that's sending up those low shoots? What Do you have a feel for that? Well, they're really tiny, tiny. Okay. Uh, okay. And and you know, I I scrape them and I can see their yeah uh, root. Yeah. Okay. So. Well, then I think you probably need to put a little more mulch on. Uh, seeds need sunlight to come up and get established, and I think the mulch being a little thicker would help. Um, there's also obviously a lot of weed seeds there, so you're destroying some, but others are just being stirred up and sprouting. So I would, I would though, if if it were mine, I, I would go ahead and mulch a little deeper. Yeah, well, we've we've had uh, an inch to two inches of mulch, and they okay. come right up through it. Well, inch to two inches. What kind of mulch is it? Is it like a wood chip or pine bark? Or, it's pine bark or, mulch. Okay. Sometimes the bigger, chunkier kinds of mulch can allow some light through, uh, and so they have to be a little bit deeper to to effectively block it. So I still think yeah, this is this is pretty. Uh, fine grains. So. Okay. Well, I'm not sure how those little seedlings are getting going if they're not getting light, but I, I still would, would deepen it a little bit and uh, just stay with what you're doing. Uh, the less you disturb the soil, the less weed seeds you bring up. But I'm not, uh, I've not run into a situation where a good mulch wouldn't keep the, the seedling weeds uh, under control. Well, I've even uh, gone to, in some areas, putting down the uh, you know, black cloth mm-hmm. that uh, water can go through. Yeah. Uh, and that that seems to be holding up well. Okay. But yeah. that's a lot of work to try to put it around. It is a lot of work, yeah. That is true. Because uh, you have to be able to hold it down, too. Right, right. With mulch. Yeah, that's right. Are there any poisons that you, you know, that you could spray on them? Just, yeah, I'm 
hesitant because you know it's oftentimes close to bushes. Yeah. Uh, you know, little tender seedlings like that you could burn with a top burn mulch or a top burn herbicide like vinegar is an example. You you spray it and it just fries the top, and when it's a little tender seedling, that kills it. Uh, and that way, if you so got literally some, literally just white vinegar. No, it's a, it's a stronger herbicidal vinegar. It'll be like eight percent or ten percent, maybe more, uh, but uh, not the, not the household. That's only about five percent acidity. So okay. uh, go go with about eight or ten percent at least. And and if you get some on a good plant, it's just going to burn that leaf. You know, you're not going to spray the whole plant with it. Right. But, but when you're carefully spraying, there's no wind and don't pump up the sprayer too hard so you have this mist floating through the air. Uh right. you know, keep your keep your droplet size a little smaller and I think you'll be okay with that. That's a, another good idea. Okay, so I can just get that at uh any nursery or uh pretty much. Store. Yeah, you ought to be able to. Mhm. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Okay. I, okay, the second question I had was what, uh, we're looking at planting a tree, and uh, the question is, what can you give me two or three trees that you think are Oof. good in this area, other than live oak? What, what do you want the tree for, shade or what? Uh, just some shade, but more just to have a nice-looking tree. We've got several trees, but we're going to lose some over the years. Well, we have a lot of good trees, and each species has its pros and cons. Uh, there's a, a red oak called Nuttall, N-U-T-T-A-L. I believe there's only one L. Uh, it's Nuttall, N-U-T-T-A-L, something close to that. And uh, okay. it, it does really well here. Uh, and it, it's a red oak, deciduous. Uh, the uh, Chinese elm does pretty well here. Uh, you see those around town. They have really attractive bark and very small leaves. But any elm species, native or introduced, is going to have a lot of seeds, and so they come up in flower beds and things. Um, that's the negative of it. But those two, I think, mm -hmm. are, are really nice species for casting some shade and having a pretty good growth rate, too. Okay. All right. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you for the call, Wolf. Let's now go and talk to Lewis. Hello, Lewis. Good afternoon, Skip. I have noticed, as always, every spring I get a lot of purslane coming up. And mm -hmm. I'm looking, I'm just curious, because I eat it. I mean, I'll put it, pull it in a salad. Are there such things as an improved purslane there variety? There are. There are. Uh, you got to shop around. Not just every seed company is going to have them. They're not going to be on seed racks. But uh, there's one called, uh, do you have a pen or pencil handy? Sure, always when I talk or listen to the show. That's good. You're doing you're doing it right then. Uh, Gold Gelber, G-O-L-D-G-E-L-B-E-R, is kind of a light green colored but very upright uh, purslane, unlike the little spreading weeds in your yard. Uh, mm -hmm. There's one called Red Gruner, R-E-D, another word, G-R-U-N-E-R. Uh, and it's upright. I'm not as crazy about it. The the stems at the base are a little redder, but it's not a red. It's you know, it's not like you're gonna have what you're eating is not gonna be that red. Uh, right. And then there's one called Mithra, M-I-T-H-R-A, and that okay. one that one does well too. I I grew all of those last year, trying them out, and they all did okay. pretty good. I think the Gold Gelber and the Mithra. Gold Gelber has really large leaves, as does Mithra. Okay, good. Yeah, because they're so good in salads. And like I said, and I had some 
you know, just through natural selection, just some really mm-hmm. large varieties and fleshy yeah. leaves came up last year, but didn't save the seeds from them and wish I would have. Yeah, it's, it's a yeah. weed that it should have been made into a garden vegetable a long time ago. You know, everything we eat in the garden somewhere grew wild, right? And so, exactly. uh, so this is, purslane is high in omega-3, um, and that is really important for our health. Uh, it can be used in, I put it in smoothies, actually. It kind of has a tanginess hmm, to it. That's interesting. Not, sort of lemony, I guess, a little bit. Uh, but anyway, yeah, there's a lot of ways you can cook it and eat it. And obviously, it wants to grow here in the heat of summer. Well, uh, similar question. What is your thoughts, and I'm going to mispronounce this word, but it's malachi. I've heard it referred to mm-hmm. in a... It's, uh, it's molochia, M-O-L-O. There's about four different spellings of it, depending on which culture and part of the world you're you're in. Right. But it, the most common I found is M-O-K-O, Molo, M-O-L-O-K-H-I-A, Molochia. And okay. there's some variations on that. Uh, it is super heat tolerant. You don't need many plants. I mean, those uh, the bushes in my garden, when I've grown it, have gotten five feet tall or more. Uh, oh wow! And you're okay. eating. You're, it's a jute relative. It's re- really close related to what jute. Okay. Uh, so you're eating the tender new growth and leaves, and it grows right through the heat, unfazed. Uh, so that's another one that. Uh, do, do you prepare it, or is it raw? Or, or? It's cooked in different ways. Uh, some people chop it up very fine and uh, make almost like a pesto-like with it. Um, okay. I know it's been used in rice and lamb dishes, but I'm definitely not an expert on all the the ways that, that it is okay. cooked. Those are just some, some that I happen to be familiar with. Okay. I had some seed of it, and I was yeah. actually packing up, and I came across it, and it's from 2021. I had done a germ test. I think, I, it'll come, I think it'll come up. And uh, you do want to be careful with a lot of these summer weeds uh, that we eat that are good, uh, summer greens. They reseed profusely, and um, oh yeah, Malabar spinach—that's a classic. Malabar yeah. will reseed, amaranth right. will reseed, uh, Molokia right. will reseed. I mean, it, a bazillion seeds. So just chop the—you know—when they start blooming, chop right. top little tips out. You need to shear it back anyway. I shear mine back because that makes more terminals, and that's the tender new growth. So uh, you don't have to just let it become a giant bush and just pick the leaves off. You can also do some shearing if you want. If, right. if I could ask one other, one other quick question, I'm doing sure. a new bed for a for a flower bed, annuals and perennial flowers. So, high intensity type planting bed, and adding compost and sand, brand new construction. Um, would you add expanded shale and till it in, or would you forego that? If you have a very heavy clay soil, and you want to amend a bed and have the amendment last a long time, expanded shale is great. But you have to put down about three or four inches of it, a lot of it. Oh, wow. and because wow. you want to, I don't want to say overwhelm, but you want a significant portion of that soil to be shale. To just put a little few chips of shale down into a, a, a clay is not very helpful. It'd be like, imagine this is a bad analogy, but taking a few pieces of pea gravel and mixing them into modeling clay. You know, it didn't really right. make the modeling clay drain better, right? So you got to use sure. a lot of it. And uh, but it it works long long term, which which uh, compost uh, breaks down. Now, if it's a bed, you're going to be doing vegetables or annual flowers or you know reworking. Then I wouldn't bother with the shale. I would just use compost. 
Okay, that was my current plan. I just I had used banded shells many years ago when it first came on yeah. the market and some raised beds. Mm-hmm. But I was just looking at didn't know what the um, current thought was on expanded shale. That's okay, it. Good. That's it. Uh, Dr. Steve George from AgriLife Extension did some research up in the Dallas area, and they mm-hmm. they found that it did really well. Okay. I well, appreciate advice on the first line. Thank you. Yeah, and thank you for the call, Lewis. Uh, now let's uh, go. By the way, the phone number nine seven nine eight four five five six eight nine, or by email at garden success at tamu dot edu. Now we're going to go talk to Catherine. Hello, Catherine. Hello. It's been a while. I'm sort of a regular caller. Um, can you? I don't know if you have people waiting. I actually have three questions. Can we do that? We, we have time for that. Thank you for. Okay. Thank you for being a regular caller. <laughs> well, I need a lot of help. Okay, <laughs> Star Jasmine. I've lived here 15 years. I put in Star Jasmine 10 or 11 years ago to climb up ugly brick walls okay. on a lattice. It was gorgeous. It grew up to the gutters and the roof. I constantly had to cut it back. Totally covered these ugly brick walls mm-hmm. for... Eight years, nine years. Mm-hmm. The last two winters, it's been ruined. Yeah, I've had to replace it twice. Mm-hmm. So it gets kind of expensive, and it's a lot of trouble. So um, is that going to keep happening? Is climate change that bad, or is there some way I can protect it during winter when it wants to freeze? And it's growing against a wall, you said? Yes. Okay. Well, you could drop, um, you know, get a staple gun and drop a sheet of plastic from the eaves of the house or whatever down and secure it just to kind of hold the the warmth essentially of the house in with the plant just so the cold air doesn't hit it. That's a lot of trouble, but I can't think of another way to protect a plant that's growing along the wall of your house. Uh, Star Jasmine is, we're at the northern end of its limit, which is about zone 8, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, so when we have a really cold winter, we can get some damage to it. Uh, and we've had a couple of doozies as far as what the future holds. I, I can't predict the weather, but uh, it is a wonderful plant. As If you've uh, had it, you know the fragrance is nice. It's attractive to bees and, and really pretty. So I think it's still worth planting. Well, is plastic enough, or does it have to be like a quilt or a blanket? No, it wouldn't have to be a quilt or blanket. I mean, a plastic is just something that is somewhat easier to work with and attach. If you can figure a way to drop anything up against it, uh, I mean, I don't know the, I can't see the setting, so I can't tell you uh, how to how to rig something. But basically what I was suggesting is since it's against the house, if you create a dead air space around right. that plant, then the warmth yeah. of the house doesn't just get blown out by a breeze of freezing air. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, well, now, did, yeah. your, did your jasmine not re-sprout from the base? Well, yeah, from one little stump. You know how long that takes? <laughs> believe it believe it or not. Well, because hey, I, that terrible <laughs> two years ago, the bark all split, you know? Okay. So the, <laughs> all right. Hey, I, I didn't order the cold in, so let, 
<laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, well, I understand. I, boy, I don't know what else to tell you. Uh, I, I wish we will. Okay, I wish me, we go back to normal. With, yeah, and that's the problem. We basically don't have winter. We mm-hmm. just have two episodes of twenty degrees. You know, and well, that does it. Well, and that's the problem, though, is when we cool off gradually you can get really cold and plants can survive fine when plants are are growing in a mildish climate and all of a sudden here comes a hard freeze that's when they get hit and that's what last december did to us Uh, does the wind chill affect plants no the well no not not in in that sense now Plant tissues freeze when those tissues drop below whatever temperature that plant can take. If you've got wind blowing, it speeds the cooling because, you know, it, it's just removing heat faster. Uh, and and so I guess in a sense wind chill matters, but uh, I, I'd, I would not think of it that way. I'd think of it more like just you it's the temperature and the length of time at that temperature a lot of freezes here you know you go through the night and it just dips down below freezing early 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 in the morning and stays down for an hour or two or three and then comes back up that's not as bad of a freeze as when we're 24 hours in a freeze and Mm -hmm. and uh, if you can create again the dead air space what you're doing is you're slowing the rate of cooling and that may get them through now if it's going to be like february 21 where it's super super freezing for days well then slowing the rate of cooling isn't helping a whole lot because it's still going to get down there it's not going to slow it down five days you know well i tried mylar blankets last winter okay and a light bulb didn't do one thing but it was so windy, it kept blowing the mylar around. Well, and that's why it, it didn't do one thing. The only benefit of a light bulb is if you have a dead air space, it helps inside there. Because the, the warmth that it creates doesn't have anywhere to go but around that plant. Uh, but most of us are not able to create that dead air space, especially when you've got a vine up against a wall. I know. Okay, dwarf holly. How tall will it get? What? I guess it's a Burford. Burford? I'm gonna I'm gonna guess about six feet on the dwarf. Let me let me check that and uh Well the, that's what the books say. Oh it do? Okay, well then <laughs> How big will the non dwarf will the regular Holly get? Oh I don't know. I've never I've never seen them full size, but I would think they would get up to about eight or eight or ten feet probably. Yeah. Um Yeah, I and also uh Catherine, it depends on the, the the growing conditions. You know, sun versus shade, a, a wonderful soil versus a terrible soil, good drainage versus bad drainage, uh, mm. good nutrients versus very poor conditions. You know, those dramatically affect how big any plant would get. So that's why yeah. we always, you know, it's always hard saying how big a tree or shrub's going to get. Because if you put the full size down, well, let me take, 20 years to get to that size. Uh, most people, we kind of have to go, well, in so many years, it's going to get about this big in most spots. And that's that's where we come up with those numbers like six feet or five feet or whatever. Uh, so. Well, I had three big hollies. I know there's so many kinds. I'm assuming it's Burford with the 
prickly point on the leaf. Just one point um, on the end? Just the tip, yeah. Okay, probably Burford. And they were facing full west sun against a brick wall. I liked them for insulation. Just I could cook a pizza on that wall. I'm not kidding. Okay. Uh, and so a landscaper came through and planted dwarf hollies. I would have preferred taller the better. So I was just trying to compare if there was something taller than dwarf. There are. There. There are. Uh, it's. It's just a. It's just a type of a Chinese holly, and uh, there are a number of different uh, Chinese holly. Uh, I, Burford, I'm, I'm just checking here. Burford actually, it says, can get six to eight feet tall, uh, so that's going to take a little more time. But if you, if you shear the sides and let the top keep going up, uh, mm -hmm. and and you fertilize it with a, a lawn fertilizer, not weed and feed, but just a good turf fertilizer that has more nitrogen in it. And then you mm -hmm. keep it adequately watered. I, you can get it to grow up, you know, probably high enough to do you some good there. The only okay. other alternative would be to have a some kind of a vine on the wall. Um, and it doesn't have to be attached <laughs> to the wall. It could be on a fence. And we've already talked that out yeah. with your, with your yeah. jasmine. Yeah, yeah. Well, I won't try jasmine. <laughs> okay. I'm already no. struggling. Yeah. But thank you for answering those questions. I'm assuming fertilizing a red bud, a young red bud, would be helpful too? Yes, in moderation. You know, it, it just, you want to uh, put a little fertilizer down and six weeks, eight weeks later, put a little fertilizer down. Just kind of gradually feed it over time through the season and stop, stop your fertilizing by about the 1st of August. There's plenty of nutrient to carry it into fall. And remember how we've been talking about plants are growing luxuriously and then here comes a freeze. We don't want to make that even worse by pushing I into see. late season growth. Makes sense. Okay. And a balanced fertilizer or nitrogen? Well, I would use a lawn for like a 3-1-2 ratio product. Uh, any okay. Anything for your lawns is going to have low phosphorus and medium potassium and and high nitrogen generally, uh, but that that would do well. And again, without seeing a soil test and knowing what you already have in the soil, it that's a general guide, not a very specific re a recommendation. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for spending so much time with me. I appreciate it, Skip. I'll let you go on to someone else. All right. You take care. Thanks for the call, Catherine. Our phone number is 979-845-5689. 845-5689 or by email at gardensuccess at tamu dot edu gardensuccess at tamu dot edu uh, I had an email from Andrew about a jatropha plant and it's in a container and the growth is looking a little bit kind of reddish is starting to get reddish colored little actually other parts a little lighter lighter than the green really should be on a jatropha. And the question is, what's up? Well, number one, it's in a container. And jatropha is a pretty good-sized plant, or it wants to be. Um, the uh, soil level is a little lower in the container, so that means the volume that it has is a little bit less than it could have if the soil was full. Uh, I think I would try a complete fertilizer, and I would... I would either use a soluble liquid or soluble product that, you know, you mix in water and then pour on the plant and follow the label as to how much you put on. Or 
you might try a slow release product and there's a number of brands out there that you mix them into the soil and then every time you water uh, it releases a little bit of nutrient from it but i would give it a boost to fertilizer and get some get some vigor and get some growth on it it might be a little bit short on phosphorus looking at the leaf color but you know that's that's a tough call to make for sure and i i'm not uh, i'm not real sure if that's it but if you even if you use one of these complete fertilizers you're going to get all of it in in one in that consider in time moving it to a bigger container maybe maybe do that next year if you want if you want to let it go for a little while but i think i think the watering or the fertilizing is good and then finally andrew the watering uh it's so easy for a plant like that uh, to pump that little bit of soil dry and this goes for all the plants we grow in containers i, I talk about it uh, often about tomatoes you know, can you grow a tomato in a five-gallon bucket? The answer is yes. But think about this. Every drop of water that plant gets all summer has to come out of five gallons of soil. And that's, that is a touch-and-go situation. So you, we get, you know, 98 degrees during the day and, what, almost 80 at night sometimes, um, or, or it is 80 at night sometimes, that plant is just pumping a ton of water. And so you're going to be watering it maybe twice a day to just keep it alive. And it, it, you forget once or you go for a few hours even, at the, and it, it goes into a stress, and it could abort the flowers on a tomato, for example. Uh, and so it's not just a matter of keeping it alive, it's keeping it healthy. So the bigger the container, the, the more forgiving that situation is going to be. Forgiving in the sense of, if you forget to water it twice a day or whatever, it's still going to be okay. And uh, as far as nutrients, it's got a little more soil volume to draw nutrients from as well. So I would I would try the fertilizer, see if it perks up, be especially attentive to the watering. Uh, when we get into uh, the coming weeks, as the weather finally starts to warm up a little bit, just make sure that that, that container is draining is uh, staying moist but also draining well. Uh, the final point was, I just kind of mentioned it, and that is turn it over, make sure when you, or, or just when you water, make sure that water is coming out the bottom of the container when you put a lot of water in it uh, because if it's not draining well, then that, that's not going to make the Jotropha or most plants very happy either. Uh, but overall, I think it looks pretty good. I think you're doing pretty good with it. Uh, just remember at some point soon, go ahead and and slide it out of that pot, put some fresh soil around it. You can use the old soil that, that's there, but just kind of refill it and get that plant lifted up a little bit in the container uh, where it has a little more soil volume, or even better yet, put it in a slightly larger a larger pot. Jotropha, by the way, uh, it likes sun, but not too much sun. A little morning sun is good. If you give it a little afternoon shade, it's going to be even happier, and it's going to be easier on it in that container, too. So that is one other thing. Some of the, the coloring of the leaves, uh, Andrew, you're going to notice are on the tops of the leaves where the sun may hit. And uh, sometimes uh, the, the, um, you can get a little bit of a sunburn on some plants, especially if they're not used to full sun and then they move into full sun. Uh, you can, you can uh, also get that. So those are just some possibilities to think about. Well, our phone number is 845-5689 or by email at gardensuccess at tamu.edu. Gardensuccess at 
T-A-M-U dot E-D-U. Let's go to the emails. And Scott asked about, um, I was talking about a, a bag to protect fruit from birds. And I have not done this myself. I just want, that's kind of the disclaimer. I haven't done it myself, but I, I know a lot of folks that claim that if you put an organza bag over fruit, the birds don't tend to mess with it because they, they, I don't know, it's, organza is a very, for those of you out there who aren't familiar with organza, which would have included me a few years ago, um, it's a it's a mesh type bag, a very fine woven fabric that they look sort of white. Uh, the bags look sort of whitish, or uh, because the, it's got a real tight weave to the fiber, and then it has a drawstring on it. And you can buy these in different sizes. Uh, you might see perhaps a bride would use them for gifts for the bridesmaids at a, at a wedding or something. Uh, but they're they're very small or very lightweight. And they have that draw a ribbon that's a drawstring, and you can buy them in mass for not much money at all. You can buy them like four by six inches, or much larger, or much smaller. Uh, and depending on the fruit you're going to have, if you put it over the fruit uh, before it gets old enough for the birds to peck on it, and you pull the drawstring, you don't have to tie it. Just pull pull the drawstring, and it'll stay on the fruit. I use them uh, in okra breeding, and they they I don't ever tie them. They just stay on. Uh, anyway, I think that'll help. Now, if you've got an acre of peaches, you're not going to use organza bags to protect the fruit. But for a tree in the backyard, uh, if you're darn tired of watching squirrels do what they do, uh, then or rats at night, that's another possible culprit is rats at night. Um, I think it may be worth trying. There's some kinds of fruit it's not going to be practical for, like strawberries. You know, getting on your hands and knees and trying to bag each little strawberry. It's not going to work. I don't know, maybe you could bag the whole plant. Nah, that wouldn't work either. Uh, it certainly wouldn't work. You wouldn't be able to do it with blackberries and some other things. But anyway, Scott, that's what we were talking about, and hopefully that would be helpful to you. Our phone number is 845-5689. If you're calling from outside the Bryan College Station area, it's 979-845-5689. And you can reach me by email at gardensuccess at tamu dot edu. Gardensuccess at tamu dot edu. Go back here to the emails. Uh, I'll tell you what, I'm going to check that in just a moment. Uh, Becky has, looks like, some maroon-colored crepe myrtles along a west-facing fence line, and they don't look so well. Um, question is, do you want to give them a little more time, or do we need to pull them out and try something else? Well, uh, looking at the crepe myrtles, a lot of, lot of missing foliage, a lot of bare limbs, uh, and they just they don't look uh, very well at all. Uh, I would I would say number one uh, I would look at how to fertilize those and get some new vigor. I think they've suffered from cold damage. Uh, that's what it looks like to me. And crepe myrtles ought not have cold damage here, but we've sure seen some. And so I would uh, watch out for that little piled up mulch around them. I'd kind of pull that away. I think that would be helpful. What happens with the piled up mulch? On a little raised bed around the crepe myrtle like that is it sheds water when it rains and so where water could soak in it, it's not soaking in very well i don't know how long the plants have been in the ground but that would be another factor if it hadn't been in the ground long it's going to be much more prone to drought kinds of injury and so 
I think I'd prune out all the dead, give them give them one more season with the fertilization, uh, and see if that brings them along. Crepe myrtles are tough once you get them established, and you should have better looking results than that uh, with your with your crepe myrtle there, Becky. I hope that hope that uh, helps. Well, let's go to the phones now, and we're going to talk this time to Brian. Hello, Brian. Hey, Scott. Scott, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Hey, I sent you an email this morning. I don't know if you received it, but uh, it's it's uh, about my lawn over in Pebble Creek. I've got chinch bugs again. Uh, well, uh, the effects of chinch bugs from last season. And uh, I've actually gotten out in the yard and raked up a lot of the dead grass, of which was very numerous. So my question relates to rehabbing my lawn. Okay. How do I uh, rehab the lawn uh, to try and prevent the chinch bugs damage in the future? Is there such a thing as any St. Augustine that's resistant to chinch bugs? Okay, so I didn't get the email, so would you resend it, and this time to garden success one word, at T-A-M-U dot E-D-U. I will. I'll be glad to look at it. There is a chinch bug resistant, I believe the Floritam is chinch bug resistant. I'm going to check that as we're talking here. Uh, Floritam's not the best choice for a St. Augustine, and I don't think I would plant it because of the chinch bugs. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't think that you're going to find Floritam to be a an acceptable, beautiful lawn. Now, if you had a huge, large area and you wanted it to be real drought tolerant, and you didn't care if it was a little rangy looking, you know, you didn't have to be the perfect little dense lawn, well, maybe Floritam would be one to consider. But I'm not so sure you have chinch bugs. First of all, we're we are too early in the season to have chinch bugs right now. Uh, typically, there's a spring generation that occurs, uh, and then the second generation occurs in late summer, and that's the damaging one. That's one where we get the biggest numbers and the most damage. Uh, so whatever happened last year could have been chinch bugs, could have been drought, could have been take-all root rot, could you know, some other things. Uh, but it's hard to go back in time and know. Uh, but uh, anyway, chinch bugs in general aren't just an every year big problem. Okay. Or they okay. generally generally aren't. So when I go back to uh, replant and sod some of the, the big patches, mm -hmm. uh, should I just use... Uh, a compost around uh, the new plantings, or should I use uh, topsoil, or what do you recommend there? So you're you're talking about laying sod, well, oh. or sprigging sod, yes. Uh -huh. Okay. I mean, I've got some big patches. Okay. Uh, with is and it is Saint Augustine, right? Yes. Uh -huh. Okay. Uh, so you're you're just going to want to lay sod in those areas. Uh, if you wanted to save a little on money, you could take the blocks of sod and cut them. I, I've done it before using like a sharp machete, just cutting them into slices or right, squares right. or whatever. And, and then you plug them in and it goes farther, but it's more much more tedious to do that. And uh, you do have the bare space between plugs where weeds are going to tend to come up. So if you can, you know, f uh, fork over the bucks just to do solid sod, that's that's a probably a better better way to go. Uh, you want to just loosen the soil, rake the soil, kind of loosen it, 
you want to make sure it's level so if you got any holes before you saw it is a good time to get everything level and then I would just use regular topsoil type material to fill in and then plant it and you want to water it regularly make sure after you plant it that you press it down so there's good contact between the the sod and the soil below you know it's not like the sod is hanging up there in the air above the soil where there's a little sure. little undulation of the soil uh, but anyway good good soil to sod contact uh, water it a couple times a day for a, a few days go to once a day for maybe a week and then uh, after that you can start to back off a lot uh, okay. once it once it gets good and established and I shouldn't need to put down any chinch bug preventer no it won't do uh, it underneath won't, the sod no it won't do any good now now in in late summer uh, when you start to see a chinch bug problem uh, just um, you can you can bring you can send pictures and bring samples to the AgriLife Extension office. Are you in Brazos County? Yes. Uh -huh. Okay. Yeah. Bring bring it over to our office, and we can take a look at it. Um, but before you do that, contact us and let me explain where and how to take that sample so that you okay. don't you don't waste a trip. I, sure I, I chinch bugs almost always start next to a driveway, a sidewalk, a curb, some sort of masonry structure in the sun uh, and so if you've got like dead spots that are appearing here and there in the yard or and especially if some are in the shade that's probably not chinch bugs okay. and if it's not okay. that if it's not august it's probably not chinch bugs either um, right i mean it you know i'm not making just absolute black and white but probably not uh, there okay. are there are other things that can cause problems in the lawn and and if you start to have that Early on in the process, uh, let's get it diagnosed and, and head, head you off in the right direction to fix it. Great. I'll send pictures. I appreciate it. I listen often. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Tell your you. family and friends that we're here. All right. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. Yeah. By the way, we do have a podcast. Uh, this this show is is podcast. So whatever podcast providers you use, check for Garden Success, and you will uh, be able to listen to past shows. Uh, so if you want to re-listen to a show or just go back and listen to some other ones, you sure can, and tell people about it. Uh, there's a lot of folks. We, we have occasionally people listening you know, outside the area that will call in, uh, and that's always interesting, kind of fun too. Well, you're listening to Garden Success, and I'm your host, Skip Richter, and our phone number is 979-845-5689, or you can reach me by email at gardensuccess at tamu.edu, gardensuccess at tamu.edu. See, I think I went through, covered most of the email things that have come in today. Uh, Talking about what's going on around the area, uh, there's we're kind of reaching the end of the month, so I'm just looking at the activities in the community for the month. Uh, the Master Gardeners on Saturday, two days from now, out at the gardens on campus, the gardens at Texas A&M University, are going to be doing a program on plant propagation. So it'll be out there in the pavilion in the middle of the in the middle of the gardens. And a few of our Brazos County Master Gardeners are talking about plant propagation, and it's free. 
you can come for free and learn how to start plants from cuttings and you can ask them all kinds of questions about plant propagation. They're really good at it. They help me with teaching our master gardener classes and teaching the public classes on plant propagation. Now this is on Saturday, April 29th at 10 a.m. in the morning, about 10 a.m. to 1.30. And the, the Gardens calls this series the In the Dirt with Master Gardeners. Uh, we have one more coming up in uh, May, and I'll tell you more about it later. Uh, but Molly Harris is going to be talking about uh, pollinator gardens. And I think you will find that uh, interesting as well. Uh, but the one this Saturday, two days from now, is uh, at the gardens. Now, on the weekends, there is parking available because it is the weekend uh, and uh, you can find information if you go to gardens.tamu.edu gardens.tamu.edu and they'll give you you can click on find the gardens parking and transportation webpage and it'll show you what lots are available to park in so get there early so you don't miss anything uh, because this they're going to be doing hands-on demonstration and kind of showing you uh, how you go about doing things and i think you will find it very very interesting with uh, the warming weather and i say warming weather as we've had a couple of cooler days here but uh, it's warming, we know. We're going to wish it was this cool later on. Uh, with the warming weather, now we're entering the time where most of our spring and summer crops have been planted. Most of our spring crops have been planted. Uh, you should have definitely gotten your uh, tomatoes in uh, by now, your peppers and eggplants and other things. You can continue to plant eggplant a little bit, a little bit later. In fact, I occasionally will plant them all the way through uh, into August because they're pretty tough. Uh, peppers also can be planted now, but uh, they're primarily wanting to produce in the spring and in the fall. That's when they most peppers do most of their setting. But uh, this is the time when we can do our summer crops. We are at the big, big prime time for melons, like a cantaloupe, um, musk melon, honeydew melons, uh, watermelons. Those all can be planted now. Uh, our winter squashes, which include pumpkins, uh, can be planted through the summer season. Uh, the key to success with those, because they take a long time, they may take three or four months, depending on uh, what species it is to, and what variety, to reach production. So the key to those is you want to keep them adequately watered uh, through the summer heat. And you want to watch the foliage diseases. Powdery mildew and some other diseases can really wreak havoc on those in our hot and humid and sometimes rainy uh, climate. And so some protective sprays of the foliage would be helpful in getting you along toward harvest. Uh, I, I like to plant uh, winter squashes. I, I think they're, well, number one, they're very nutritious. Um, and compared to summer squashes, they are. And because they take a while, uh, sometimes you plant them in June or even you can plant them up to about early July and still have a harvest in the fall. Gives them plenty of time to do that. So what is the difference between a summer squash and a winter squash? Well, years ago, I was driving through an unnamed town, listening to an unnamed station by an unnamed host. And I heard that question asked of the host, and the host said, well, we grow summer squash in the summer and winter squash in the winter. Well, no, we don't. We don't grow any squash in the winter. Uh, summer squash is uh, typically, not always, typically, it's a bush-type squash, but there are some somewhat vining types. But it's a squash that we eat when it's immature. So it blooms, it sets fruit, and it begins to grow. And before it gets tough, 
uh, and the seeds become large, we eat it. So that would be your yellow squash, your zucchini squash, uh, your patty pan squash, your Zara type of squash. Um, th those are all examples of summer squashes. Winter squash, we allow to get fully mature before we eat them. You don't eat pumpkins when they're young and tender and you can stick your little thumbnail through the skin, real, pierce the skin real easily. You let them reach full maturity and that would include the uh, spaghetti squash, the acorn squash, the butternut squash, the kabocha squash, what am I forgetting here? Pumpkins I mentioned earlier uh, would be included in that. Uh, and there are a lot of others, some that aren't so common here like Hubbard. We don't grow a lot of Hubbard down here, but uh, those are, are winter squash. Winter squash are called that because number one, they take a long time to produce. So typically uh, in more northern climates, you know, they're kind of growing through the summer and then you're taking the harvest and you're storing it for months into the winter months. It's a squash you can eat in the winter because it's a storage type of squash. So that's the difference between a summer squash and a winter squash. Uh, simple as that. What else can we plant in the summer? Uh, oh, I forgot uh, warm season greens. We have a number of greens that can take hot weather. In fact, today, uh, Lewis kind of started us down that line with talking about purslane and talking about molokia. Uh, I mentioned it during that call amaranth, which is the farmers call it pigweed when it's wild. Uh, but there are types of amaranth that have been bred for vegetable gardens and they have big leaves and they are nice and tender and taste good. Uh, Malabar spinach is another one. Uh, Malabar is a green that is somewhat mucilaginous. What, what does that mean? Well, it means we don't want to use the word slimy, so we call it mucilaginous. Uh, mucilaginous uh, greens are typical in the summer. Not all greens are, are but uh, Molokia is, has some mucilaginous qualities. Uh, okra has definitely, you know, people say okra stays slimy. Well, okay. If, if you Once okra touches water and you once you cut it open and the inside parts touch water, that the mucilage is released and that helps thicken uh, your your soups, your gumbos and, and however you want to make okra. If you just, just cut it and bread it and fry it, you're not going to have much mucilage. The way I like to cook okra, I probably said this before, but the way I like to cook okra is to brush the outsides of young tender pods with olive oil. And then when I'm out barbecuing, I'll sprinkle a little sea salt on the pod and then I'll put the pods on the barbecue pit while I'm barbecuing something else. About two minutes on one side, flip it over, about two minutes on that side, this is a good hot pit, and take them off and they're ready to go. And when you eat that, you are not going to get much mucilage. It, it works pretty good. Another thing that cuts down on mucilage is acidic. Uh, that's why often okra is stewed with tomatoes. Gives it a little more acidic uh, conditions and not quite as mucilaginous. Anyway, back to the greens. Malabar, a very, very prolific uh, in the summertime. And there are a number of other good summer greens. Uh, typically, our summer greens are not familiar to a local gardener, Texas gardeners. You know, people that grew up and gardened in Texas are not going to know about a lot of these greens because they're not from our culture. They're not from uh, traditionally what we grew up eating. Uh, those of us who grew up here. and uh, But it makes sense, doesn't it, that if you wanted a green that would grow in Texas hot 
sultry, hot all day, hot all night, uh, sultry, humid weather, where would you look for a plant like that? Well, you could go to tropical regions of the world. There's parts of Africa, parts of India, and other places where the the conditions are similar. And there are greens that just haven't become famous here, but they're they're well known in other places. And so uh, there are a number of new ones. We keep testing new ones out. There are a number of new ones out there that I think more people ought to try growing. But you know how it is with our cuisine. We kind of grow up with something, and we think that's how it has to be. It's kind of like the argument between does chili have beans or not. And by the way, the answer is no. Uh, but uh, you see what I'm saying? Uh, I, ex I encourage you to explore. Let your culinary tastes expand, and I think you'll find some things that you like a lot and some other ways to do it other ways to cook them and use them. Our phone number is 979-845-5689 and by email gardensuccess at tamu dot edu gardensuccess at tamu dot edu. Wow, we had a flurry of calls here at the beginning and all of a sudden it's gotten kind of quiet. Uh, they used to tell me that if I quit talking, people will start calling. That when I talk, people are just listening to the radio and they don't call. I, I think dead airspace probably isn't the best policy, so I'm not going to do that. Uh, got an email from Christy about a Texas mountain laurel. It's done uh, really well for a number of years, and all of a sudden, it is just turning brown. And and I see the the picture shows uh, a looks like. Parts of it are still green, but most of it is brown. Maybe I'm missing, maybe I'm not seeing which plant is which. If the whole mountain laurel is turning brown, that is a bad sign, and I don't think it's going to recover. Uh, it is an evergreen plant. It is native to the hill country, Texas, and other parts. And uh, so you would typically find it out on a limestone outcropping without much soil, uh, definitely not soggy conditions. So when we start moving it east, you know, to here or even further east in Texas, you got to give it a high dry location. And it looks like you've pretty well provided it that, and it's been really happy for years. So the question is, why isn't it doing well? Well, the downspout from the house is not spilling out onto it to keep it soggy wet. Um, yeah, I would ask, what has changed? in that bed. You know, the watering pattern changed. Uh, has any kind of a herbicide been used? Uh, what else? Uh, it, it, when you see the whole top part of the plant, there's two things I think of uh, right now after the winter we just had. One would be that that December cold snap really burned it back, which would be unusual because Texas mountain laurel is pretty hardy. But a lot of plants that are normally hardy were damaged, caught off guard by that. The second thing I think about is something's wrong in the roots, and that's where we talk about the whole plant being lost. Because when you have a root rot that's destroyed enough roots where the whole top is turning brown, there's just not, it's just not going to be able to recover. You need, you need roots to be able to recover. Uh, and so other than that, I would check the base of the stems, follow along the stems, look for cracks in the bark. And I don't mean a little tiny crack, but a, you know, a significant crack running not across ways but the length of the limb uh, in parallel to the limb and see what you see there. If it were a coal damaged top you would definitely have resprouting from the base so you haven't lost your plant. That would be the good news. If you're seeing no resprouting I don't give it a great chance of surviving nor 
the ability to, well, go drench it with this or that or the other, and it's going to be okay. Um, that sudden browning, you know, that uh, I'm assuming that didn't happen in the winter time. So I'm, as I'm thinking through this, I'm I'm thinking that's probably not cold damage. Sorry to be the bearer of bad news there, Christy, or the bearer of no good solutions. Well, that would be my uh, assessment of it. After you look into it, look closer on it. If you want to follow up with an email, we, we'd be glad to take another take another stab at it. Well, we have about five minutes left. If you've got a phone call you'd like to make, something you'd like to ask about, you've got time to do it, 979-845-5689. Uh, 979-845-5689. I'm telling you, this is the time to get out and really create a beautiful summer landscape. Uh, if you if you are thinking about planting some perennials, uh, this is a super good time to plant them. There are so many. I think we could talk for about five shows just naming one perennial after another that do super well in this area. And we have garden centers in, in, in the area that uh, provide um, a lot of really beautiful color plants. And if you get them established now, uh, then when the hot weather arrives, they've already got a good root system going, and they're just going to do better. They just they just do better. So consider that. Take a look at your landscape. Go outside, stand at the road, look at the landscape, and what do you see? You know, is it a sea of green? Do you have some areas where a little color would be helpful? Uh, maybe there's a spot that would have a nice sweeping bed uh, installed to put some color and shrubs and other things in. Uh, if you uh, haven't fertilized your lawn yet, now is a good time to fertilize your lawn. Uh, turf needs a boost of nitrogen in order to have the vigor to have good green color and to provide density. And if you want to avoid long-term weed problems, then what you do is have good long-term turf management practices. And it really is simple. It's mow, water, fertilize. It's as simple as that. There are all kinds of, um, you know, things that people try to do to make a lawn better. There's all kinds of products that people say put on them. But really, when you, when you fertilize a lawn in a moderate way, you're going to get good growth. When you over-fertilize, you're going to get succulent top growth. You're going to mow more, and it's going to come at the expense of root growth. So a little, oh, a little uh, grub damage, chewing some roots here and there, is going to be more significant uh, damage to that plant. Uh, the some of the diseases we have, and and insects like chinch bugs, will uh, be much happier if you have a, an over-fertilized succulent uh, lawn. So fertilize, but don't fertilize too much. And that's that's kind of the key. Mow as often as you can. I was working on a couple of um, documents today on on how to mow the lawn. You think you people are thinking, well, what do you mean how to mow the lawn? You get a mower and you walk behind it. That's how you mow the lawn. Well, no, but how to mow the lawn properly. And and the way you make a dense lawn, uh, I think think about it this way. And this may be a surprise. What is the one single thing you do to your lawn that is the most important factor in having good density of the grass. Now, I've kind of already told you. It's not fertilizing. It's not watering. Those are important, but it's mowing. Every time you mow, you shear the lawn, and every time you shear it, it gets, you, it gets denser. You want to mow it at the same height, and you want to mow regularly. Don't cut off more than a third of the leaf blade. And if you do that, 
you will have a strong, dense, healthy turf. Now, if you let it get knee high and mow it back to ankle high, I'll exaggerate a little bit, uh, that is a shock to the grass plant. And there's going to be a lot of gaps in there. Number one, it's going to look like a hay field when you get through mowing. Uh, but uh, there's going to be gaps and you're going to get weeds and issues and you're setting that grass back. Regular mowing. How often do they mow a golf course green? Every day. A little eighth of an inch or so cut off every day, every day, every day. And can you think of a denser, prettier turf than that? Well, that's the secret. Now, you're not going to mow your St. Augustine lawn every day, but if you can do it every five to seven days, you'll be in really good shape and you'll have a good lawn. And don't overwater. We'll talk more about watering when it heats up. Uh, but for now, we're just going to leave it at that. But get out there, do your fertilizing if you haven't done it already, and return those clippings. They are free nutrients. The fertilizer bag primarily has three nutrients in it, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, clippings, have those three, plus every other nutrient that a grass needs to grow. Everything that's part of every process in the grass plant, molybdenum and zinc and, you know, all the little micros are in that clipping. Put it back on your ground and let it feed your grass. Don't pay somebody to haul it away or you're just renting your fertilizer. You've been listening to Garden Success. I'm your host, Skip Richter. We look forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, check out the podcast and tell your friends. You've been listening to Garden Success with Texas A&M AgriLife Extension horticulturist Skip Richter. Join us again next week as Skip discusses your questions about gardening and landscaping in the Brazos Valley.